You are listening to a podcast by the Trinity Long Room Hub Arts and Humanities Research Institute.
condemned as extraordinary discrimination the recent decision of the Irish government to provide a recurrent annual grant for Trinity College Dublin. The Fianna Fáil government, led by Eamon de Valera, had agreed just over two years earlier to concede the first annual state grant to Trinity College since the establishment of the Irish Free State. The strongly Catholic and nationalist orientation of the independent Irish state in its first generation, coupled with the traditional institutional identity of the college itself, shaped Trinity College's equivocal place within the new polity and encouraged, on, uh, encouraged the adoption of a calculated low-profile and cautious interaction with state institutions by the college authorities. Trinity College, it is fair to say, operated in an inhospitable cultural and political context due to its traditional association with the pre-independence unionist elite and the staunch opposition of the Catholic Church to neutral educational institutions. The National University of Ireland, uh, established uh, in 1908-1909, enjoyed a very different cultural inheritance from its more venerable counterpart, due to its origins as a non-denominational university, which was designed to function within a denominational Catholic setting. Despite their pragmatic acceptance of the Anglo-Irish Treaty, the governing elite of Trinity College rose to prominence in an era when Trinity had espoused an unapologetic unionism. To give both one example, all but one of the senior fellows of Trinity up to 1952 were elevated to their, their, their position before 1920. And the, I suppose the, the previous history of Trinity is somewhat outside the scope of this uh, presentation since, since I only have five minutes, uh, but I'd be happy to, to, to discuss it uh, in, in terms of questions. Following protracted negotiations with the new uh, Free State Government uh, in 1922-1923, the Board of Trinity secured a special non-recurrent grant of £5,000 uh, for the following year, 1923-1924, while the Government also agreed a broadly favourable settlement of the complex legal arrangements which were designed to protect the College from loss of income due to compulsory purchase under the 1903 land legislation. As part of the terms, Trinity secured a small annual grant of £3,000 in the present and future years, effectively an annual payment, on condition that the College waived any further claims to an indemnity for operation of the land purchase legislation. While the Board of Trinity reserved their right in 1923 to place the financial needs of the College before future governments once a three-year period had elapsed, in fact, no financial submission to the government was made by the college authorities for the next 23 years. This was not accidental. It marked a deliberate policy of avoiding interactions with the government which might draw unwelcome political or official intervention. And this was characterized by McDool and Webb in their academic history of Trinity uh, in 1982 as, a, as the policy of inconspicuousness or the policy of the low profile. The cultural and religious ideologies which informed the independent Irish state, particularly in its first generation, also placed Trinity's traditional academic elite in a defensive, semi-detached position. To take perhaps uh, the most important example, the predominant ideology of the institutional church and a variety of lay Catholic organizations in the early to mid 20th century, century was characterized by integralist Catholicism. Uh, term originally uh, referred to by John White, which sought to make Ireland a more completely Catholic state than it had yet become, and which reached its peak in the early post-war period. The Catholic bishops, 
uh, led uh, by John Charles McQuaid, the long-serving Archbishop of Dublin, who was a formidable exponent of integralist Catholicism, intensified their long-term opposition to Trinity College in the 1940s, in part because of its Tudor, its Elizabethan origins and Protestant tradition, but mainly because it was considered to be a repository of secular, irreligious and anti-Catholic influences. McQuaid reaffirmed the ecclesiastical ban on the attendance of students of Catholics at Trinity College in uncompromising terms through a Lenten pastoral uh, in February 1944. It should be said the original regulation, regulations dated as far back as 1875, but they were implemented with renewed vigour uh, and greater intensity by McQuaid. And you can see there, no, no Catholic may enter the Protestant University of Trinity College without previous per- permission of the ordinary of the diocese. Deliberately to disobey this law is a mortal sin, and those who persist in disobedience are unworthy to receive sacraments. The ordinary of the diocese, of course, being McQuaid. McQuaid stipulated that permission for Catholics to attend Trinity could only be given by the Archbishop for grave and valid reasons, conditional on measures to safeguard the faith and practice of Catholic students. The ecclesiastical ban intensified Trinity's dependence on students drawn from outside the island of Ireland, which reached its height in the period between 1945 and 1960. Trinity had seen a marginal decline in student numbers during the Second World War, but experienced a post-war rush as the full-time student body increased from a pre-war total of 1,543 in 1939 to 2,350 in 1950. This was certainly due in part to an influx of, of wartime of wartime veterans, both Irish but also uh, British uh, veterans of the British Army uh, in the Second World War. The composition of the student population in Trinity then was very different from almost all other higher education institutions in Ireland. Over 40% of its students were drawn from outside the state, mainly from Britain or or, or Northern Ireland, uh, in 1945-46. And this pattern, this this demographic pattern, was maintained uh, throughout the early post-war period. So that as late as 1962, 46% of the student population of 3,000 was admitted from outside the island of Ireland. The proportion of students from the Irish state in the college of the NUI remained around 90% from 1948-49 to the mid-1960s. So Trinity was distinctive for various reasons. The Board of Trinity decided to make its first request for financial aid in 23 years in Dece- to the state in December 1946. Uh, as the provost, um, Ernest Alton, indicated, the board was hesitant about making the application. Uh, the senior fellows who then continued to dominate the board and were the, uh, were the, 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 the dominant force in the affairs of the college until the, late 90, until the early 1950s feared the imposition of onerous conditions as a prerequisite for a state grant. And in particular, they feared the introduction of compulsory Irish for matriculation, which of course was a core feature of the National University of Ireland from a very early stage, uh, but was not, uh, had not been uh, embraced, that compulsory Irish for entry had not been embraced by Trinity. Uh, the board, however, eventually responded to pressure from younger academic staff and, the la- and to the lack of available alternatives to achieve financial stability uh, in the aftermath of the post-war rush uh, and the pressures of expenditure uh, following the, the increased student population. 
Alton hinted at the internal debate within the, co- within the college in his letter to de Valera on the 18th of December 1946, when he said, it is only after long consideration that we resolve to forward this appeal. We have tried our best to solve the problem ourselves, but are convinced that the health of the government are necessary. Trinity sought a regular state grant of £35,000 per year and non-recurrent capital funding amounting to 75000 The latter amounted to about three quarters of the college's projected building requirements, with the remainder to be raised by private benefactions. The government had established an ad hoc interdepartmental committee in 1946 uh, to consider submissions for financial assistance by the colleges of the NUI. And the committee was led by J.J. McElligot, who was the Secretary of the Department of Finance. It also included another official of the Department of Finance and an official of the Department of Education. It's worth noting, perhaps in passing, that the universities were under the remit of the Department of Finance until 1957. And the Department of Education's role in relation to the universities was quite ill-defined. The department was often, was often brought in to advise on financial applications, but had actually no, no authority over the vote, or no direct, the universities didn't directly come within the Department of Education's remit. The Interdepartmental Committee offered to examine Trinity's proposals, which were submitted five, six months later than the proposals of the colleges of the National University of Ireland. But instead, uh, the Taoiseach, Eamon de Valera, took personal charge of negotiations with Trinity College. That certainly reflected, perhaps, a couple of things. Firstly, the sensitivity, the perceived sensitivity of Trinity's position relative to the Irish state. But it was also not the only occasion in which de Valera engaged personally in negotiations with university leaders. De Valera, as people here will know, served as Chancellor of the National University of Ireland throughout his long public career. Uh, And at various times, he proved receptive to lobbying from university authorities, particularly the college presidents of the National University of Ireland, particularly in mitigating budgetary cuts demanded by the Department of Finance in the 1930s, and later in setting up an accommodation commission to look into the accommodation needs of the NUI in the late 1950s. So to go back to to Trinity, the college's case for funding was drafted mainly by the registrar, uh, Kenneth Bailey. Um, It shared some common ground with its NUI counterparts. Uh, It emphasised the challenge of competing for academic staff following a sharp rise in salaries in British universities as a result of increased grants given by the state and by local authorities in the late 1940s. Uh, The submission also referenced the college's inability to finance essential improvements in buildings, laboratory space and student accommodation. Yet Trinity's memorandum was also distinctive in calling upon wider historical and political arguments. Uh, Firstly, Trinity's glorious past and international reputation was invoked to support his case. And you can see the quote there, in the course of its long history of three and a half centuries, Trinity College has become known all over the world. And it seems to us important that in spite of the difficulties of the times, her traditions of scholarship and public service should be preserved and amplified. And perhaps that that case wasn't, wasn't very surprising. But the college representatives also made a bolder claim that Trinity could contribute to reconciliation between North and South as an all-Ireland institution because because Trinity drew a significant proportion of students from Northern Ireland. And again, within our own country, the college has a peculiar service to render, uh, noting they were able to attract a large number of students from Northern Ireland and claiming that they could make a very important contribution towards that increased understanding between North and South, which is the surest foundation for the Ireland of the future. 
So this argument that Trinity in some sense has transcended the border certainly did not command universal assent within a political culture imbued with traditional nationalism uh, and a strong commitment to cultural nationalism and would also be soon fiercely disputed by the Catholic bishops. But it may well have been intended to appeal to devil era. Uh, Alton, the Protestant, and Bailey, the registrar, met the Taoiseach on the 7th of December 1946 uh, with the intention of laying before you some of the needs of the college in this difficult era. And they met de Valera a couple of days before making the submission, and there's no doubt that the application would not have been made if de Valera was unsympathetic to their case. So the, um, the government's swift and favourable response bore the Taoiseach's personal imprimatur. De Valera, along with the Minister for Finance, Frank Aiken, met uh, the Protestant Registrar, uh, had two meetings on the 20th and 21st of February 1947. At the first meeting, they accepted the college's case for an annual grant, and they confirmed the following day that the government would give the, f- would give the full amount of 35000 requested as a recurrent grant. They also gave an assurance, uh, an assurance, which actually sounded better than, than it was, that when the time comes for provision of money for capital expenditure by the National University, consideration will be given to the needs of Trinity College also in this respect. Now, as it turned out, this commitment didn't amount to much, as Trinity was simply included in a general deferral of, de- of decisions on capital investment onto the late 1950s. The state gave almost no uh, capital support to any university uh, until 1959. Um, so no specific conditions regarding college governance or curriculum were attached to the grant, which was allocated for the general purposes of the college. The grant was offered, though, on the basis of mutual understandings. And the, mo- the most significant of those uh, were financial. Uh, Ernest Alton confirmed that the highest salaries, mainly those of the, the, the senior fellows, would not be increased, and the overall expansion of salaries would not generally exceed comparable increases given at the recommendation of the Interdepartmental Committee to academic staff in the NUI. And both of those stipulations were made, as de Valera put it, to avoid unfavorable comment on the government decision. Perhaps more significantly, or equally important, de Valera warned Alton and Bailey that nothing should be done which would give critics of the college just cause for for regarding the college as an institution out of sympathy with Ireland. The flying of the Union Jack was particularly mentioned. So you might wonder why the flying of the Union Jack was mentioned. Uh, Well, the the college had flown the Union Jack, or they had officially displayed the Union Jack, along with the tricolour, for most of the interwar period. Uh, between 1922 and 1939. But maybe more, perhaps also fresh in de Valera's mind, was the famous incident on Victory in Europe Day in May 1945, when a group of Trinity students in in a celebration certainly not authorised by the college authorities ran up a number of Allied flags, including the Union Jack uh, um, and the Stars and Stripes, on the main college flagpole. Uh, and they positioned them above the tricolour on the college flagpole, which provoked a furious reaction from a crowd gathering in College Green. Uh, and that incident culminated in the burning of both the Union Jack and the tricolour by contending groups of students and protesters, and subsequently two days of rioting outside Trinity. So certainly de Valera, would, de, de, de Valera had been Taoiseach in 1945, and he would have been well aware of that incident, particularly given that Alton had apologised to the Taoiseach for the disrespect shown to the tricolour. 
So, uh, but the issue was easily enough resolved uh, in 1947. Alton quickly confirmed that the Union Jack had not been flown officially since 1939. The other incident wasn't mentioned, but it was presumably understood that the, there would be no flag burnings in uh, Front Square. So the Taoiseach's concerns then were mainly about minimising any opportunity for criticism of, of his government by Trinity's numerous opponents. Uh, the only academic stipulation made by de Valera was that he urged the college officers to do more to promote the study of Irish. Uh, this meant in practice the appointment of lecturers to teach courses through Irish. Yet, when the college representatives raised practical concerns about identifying lecturers with the necessary fluency in Irish, along with the required subject expertise, de Valera indicated that the government would be satisfied with comparatively slow progress if goodwill and a desire to help were present. The board made a gesture in this direction, agreeing on the 1st of March 1947 to endeavour as soon as possible in the latest 12 months to secure the services of two or three scholars uh, capable of teaching appropriate university subjects to full university standards through, to, through the medium of Irish. Fee remission was also to be offered to students attending courses available through the national language. This gesture did not have much practical impact. The college experimented with a small number of courses through Irish in mathematics and in Irish archaeology, which later did not survive. But overall, uh, it was a far cry from the fears of traditionalists within Trinity that compulsory Irish would be imposed as the price for financial survival. So the first formal exchange on university finance, the first real negotiation uh, on money between an Irish government and Trinity College in almost a quarter of a century was very different from the chilly encounter between free state ministers and ex-unionist dignitaries in the early 1920s. Uh, Alton thanked de Valera on the 1st of March 1947 for the promise of speedy and generous assistance. Might be worth just looking at some of the responses to the, um, to the government decision. T.C. Kingsmill Moore, who was one of the uh, senators representing Trinity graduates, expressed appreciation to the government for a grant which is as generous as it is wise. And he also pointed out correctly that it was the first grant in aid for general purposes awarded to the college not only since 1922, but since the pre-Union Irish Parliament before 1800. De Valera's decision then marked a significant turning point in the state's relations with Trinity College, traditionally distance, distant and conducted at arm's length on both sides. But some of the other respects, it also perhaps marked a turning point in a different way because it exposed Trinity's finances to greater scrutiny. The state grants were subject to review by the Controller and Auditor General and the Public Accounts Committee. Uh, and this, um, the, committee's, the, 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 the Public Accounts Committee's examination of public funding sometimes allowed backbench TDs to ventilate hostility to the college. For example, Michael Fitzpatrick TD, a clan the public the deputy, questioned the basis for the grant at a Public Accounts Committee meeting in November 1949. And he said, I, not being a fellow of Trinity College, should like to know something about this matter. I want to know the reason for the amount. Now, Fitzpatrick was quickly hustled off the stage, as it were. His contribution was ruled out of order by the chair. Uh, but it did show that uh, the fact that a state grant had been given did open the way uh, to closer financial scrutiny of the college and potentially towards uh, the expression of hostility in forums such as the Public Accounts Committee. Maybe more significant, uh, the new departure in government policy did not end Trinity's isolation within an overwhelmingly Catholic society. The most trenchant critic of de Valera's decision was none other than Michael Brown, Bishop of Galway. 
Brown demanded an explanation in his address on the 30th of May 1949 for the extraordinary discrimination displayed by the government grant at a time when no public support was given to St. Patrick's College Maynooth, which is both a Catholic seminary and a recognised college of the NUI. Brown reminded his audience that Trinity was a product of the Reformation and, he argued, of the penal laws. And he said, no explanation has been given why an institution which still enjoys the proceeds of vast confiscated estates and for centuries did everything to prevent Catholics having university education should now receive 35,000 from the state, while nothing at all is given to, to Manu. Brown also ridiculed uh, the political rationale for assisting Trinity given by some defenders of the, of the grant. Some people, he said, thought that it would induce the North to come in. The North had shown itself remarkably indifferent to all their parading of their tolerance and has gone its own way. Most bishops were more careful in their public remarks uh, than Brown, but there's little doubt that his attack captured the collective hostility of the Catholic bishops towards Trinity. Brown's fusil ad left no doubt that whatever the government might do, the bishops had not relented in their hostility to TCD. The bishops, however, or at least the majority of the bishops, also saw a useful opportunity in the government decision to use the public support for Trinity, which still had its, its divinity school, as a precedent to secure a state subvention for St. Patrick's College Maynooth. And their campaign proved effective uh, in securing the first state subsidy for Maynooth College since the disestablishment of the Church of Ireland in 1869, when the, the inter-party government approved a grant of 15,000 in December 1950. The election of the inter-party government, led by John A. Costello in 1948, in which Patrick McGilligan became Minister of Finance, and uh, Eunan uh, mentioned uh, one of Eunan's favourite politicians, uh, General Richard Mulcahy, uh, went to the Department of Education. It did not lead to any Sorry. radical departure uh, in higher education. Leading Finnegan members of the government enjoyed strong connections with the NUI, particularly McGilligan, who had been appointed as Professor of Constitutional Law in UCD in 1934. The inter-party government's term in office saw a sharp, uh, albeit temporary, deterioration in the state's relations with Trinity College. The financial settlement in 1947 proved inadequate to support the, the, the post-war expansion of the universities or even to maintain their solvency. And this is a problem shared across uh, a number of universities. UCD uh, applied for immediate financial assistance of over £100,000, uh, uh, I almost said euro, in November 1949. Michael Tierney, the newly elected president of UCD, also began to lobby for government support on a much more ambitious scale. Uh, for a development plan on the Stillorgan Road involving a building programme of 2.5 million. And that was obviously one of the first proposals uh, there in 1949 for what later became the development of UCD on the Belfield campus. Almost all university leaders were seeking to improve upon the terms of the settlement given by the government in 1946-47. Alfred O'Reilly, president of UCC, also submitted a substantial funding application in 1950 to meet increased running costs partly due to inflation. Trinity College, the Board of Trinity, sought an 80% increase in its recurrent grant in December 1948 while renewing the original application for capital funding. The inter-party government was tentative in devising its own long-term policy for university education. And certainly one of the reasons for that, that, that hesitation was that the Department of Finance, led by McGallagher until 1952, was implacably hostile to any extension of state commitments in higher education, although its officials had reluctantly abandoned 
their earlier attempts to secure a, res a restriction, a reduction in student enrollment. So the Cabinet agreed in April 1950 to set up a ministerial committee on university education, which included the, the Taoiseach, uh, Tawnish to William Norton, and four Cabinet ministers, including uh, Gilligan and Mulcahy. Um, the, the brief of the Cabinet Committee was to consider the coordination of existing institutions providing university education and providing training for the medical profession, the basis on which financial assistance by the state for such institutions should in the future be provided, and the question of financial assistance by the state towards the problem of accommodation in UCD. The Cabinet Committee's terms of reference very much reflected traditionalist understandings of higher education, which were conceptualized, higher education was conceptualized essentially as the universities and, and higher level medical institutions, such as the Royal College of Surgeons uh, in Ireland, as far as ministers and public officials were concerned. The establishment of the committee, though, illustrated the government's search for a coherent policy involving greater coordination between the major institutions of higher education, which were all seeking increased public support. The inter-party government fell before the Cabinet Committee could devise any serious recommendations. Its deliberations informed the government's decision to announce a supplementary estimate, providing incremental support to the universities in December 1950. The government approved a total supplementary estimate of over £160,000 for the NUI, with the most substantial allocation of just over £100,000 going to UCD. The increased grant and the consideration by the government of what was described as UCD's accommodation problem testified to effective lobbying by Tierney, as well as McGilligan's close connections with the college. University College Cork and University College Galway also secured an increase in their grant, although university leaders in both institutions regarded it as inadequate and were soon, soon making renewed representations to the next government. Yet if most university leaders were far from satisfied, the Board of Trinity was outraged at receiving an increase of only 10,000, which the registrar, A.J. McConnell, described as altogether inadequate. The Board made three applications for increased state assistance between 1948 and 1950, none of which were successful. The province sought a supplementary grant in April 1949 to provide for a salary increase designed to keep pace with a significant salary readjustment in university institutions in Britain. Uh, McGilligan, however, refused on the 23rd of May 1949 to authorise any supplementary allocation for Trinity on the basis that the proposal to give further state aid to Trinity College cannot properly be considered apart from the financial needs of the constituent colleges of the National University. The board appealed again in December 1949 for a doubling of the annual grant and for capital funding for a new building, arguing that the college's position was much more critical than a year earlier. The overall settlement of university financial requirements by the Department of Finance towards the end of 1950 proved equally unfavourable to Trinity. The meagre allocation of £10,000 in the general supplementary estimate in December 1950 triggered the sharpest clash between college leaders and an Irish government since 1922. The college authorities appealed to Costello in January 1951 to receive a deputation about the treatment of Trinity presenting a memorandum setting comparisons in salaries of staff and financial support between Trinity and UCD. Costello and McGilligan received the Trinity deputation, which again included the provost, uh, Ernest Alton, this time the new registrar, McConnell, and the bursar, uh, Harry Trift, uh, the well-named Harry Trift, on the 19th of March, 1951. Patrick Lynch, uh, Costello's influential advisor, also attended, but as it transpired, neither Lynch nor the Taoiseach had much influence on the meeting. 
which was dominated on the government side by McGilligan. The normally moderate Alton set the tone with a pointed criticism of McGilligan, where he said, it would seem that the Minister for Finance was inclined to treat Trinity harshly. If so, his recent treatment would leave a permanent stamp of inferiority on Trinity College. But it was McConnell who presented a detailed critique of the government's policy, arguing that average endowment per student between Trinity and UCD, almost identical in 1947, was almost two to one in favour of UCD four years later. McConnell argued that this discrepancy would make it quite impossible for Trinity College to maintain a comparable standard with University College. <clears throat> but McGilligan flatly rejected Trinity's case uh, on the basis that comparable standards could not prevail between such dissimilar institutions. And he argued that if the Trinity authorities were aiming at such an objective, this was the that was the rock on which they would founder. When the registrar asked whether the minister favoured discrimination against Trinity College, McGilligan responded bluntly that Trinity was a college for Protestants and accommodated a strong British element in the student body. You see the quote there. The fact was that University College, UCD, was part of a public institution, the National University, which catered for 93% of the population. Trinity College, on the other hand, was not a public institution and catered for only 7% of the population. There were many students in Trinity College who might be described as immigrants from Britain. This is the time when you get away with saying stuff like that. Um, McGilligan's argument had an obvious historical resonance, and it reflected, and wasn't necessarily an outlier in the public administration, it reflected long-term concerns among senior civil servants in both finance and education about the high proportion of British students in Trinity, and those would come to the fore again in the 1960s. But McGilligan was also ignoring the impact of the ecclesiastical ban, and his comments showed an apparent desire to turn back the clock to the pre-1947 period when the college had received no regular state grant. The meeting soon developed into a sulfurous confrontation between McGilligan and A.J. McConnell, with occasional interventions by the provost or the Taoiseach, usually attempting without much success to moderate the main protagonists. So a particularly sharp exchange gives a flavor of the acrimony. Um, the minister said that he did not think any reasonable person would maintain the proposition that Trinity College, uh, in its particular circumstances, should be equated to University College by the use of state funds. It was not possible to put the two colleges on the same footing because the natures of both were different. The same average state endowment per, students, per student would produce gross inequality for a public institution such as University College Dublin. The registrar asked whether the government intended to strangle Trinity College. The Taoiseach, doing his best, denied that there was any such intention. There was no question of strangling or of discrimination whatsoever. For good measure, McGilligan added that many students went to Trinity because it had low entrance standards and Irish was not compulsory, reviving a traditional nationalist indictment of the college for failing to embrace Irish and for the standardized matriculation examination. Again, you can address that in questions if people want to. McConnell, for his part, did not hold back, demanding whether the minister wanted to drive the Trinity College staff out of the country. Costello took a more conciliatory line, as we saw denying any intention to discriminate against Trinity and seeking unsuccessfully to moderate the confrontation. Costello also floated the idea of a single university in Dublin, commenting that it was a pity that it has not been possible to have only one university in Dublin, which if necessary might include a number of constituent colleges. Arguably that was a fascinating observation, 
even though it was largely brushed aside by most of the other participants, including Costello's cabinet colleague. Merger between, which was Costello was referring to, merger of Trinity College and UCD was not a declared objective of the inter-party government, mainly because it hadn't developed any settled policy for higher education. But Costello's observation indicated that merger was being discussed, at least in some political and official circles, as early as 1951. So although McGilligan's more trenchant opinions were not backed up by Costello, the minister's hostility to Trinity was an insuperable obstacle to any agreement. Uh, perhaps, the most, perhaps his most striking intervention came when Costello sought to end the meeting on a conciliatory note by promising to bring the representations of the deputation before the, the government. Whereupon, the Minister for Finance said he would oppose the proposals of the deputation to the point that he would not remain Minister for Finance if the proposals were, were accepted. McGilligan's dramatic threat of resignation, if that's what it was, underlined that Trinity could expect no further assistance from the inter-party government. Following this acrimonious encounter, uh, relations between the government and Trinity were at such a low ebb that Costello avoided sending the provost the official minute of the meeting, presumably because the divergence between the two sides was so stark that any attempted at compromise was pointless. The board circulated its own report of the confrontation to the Trinity senators, identifying the government's attitude as discrimination shown against the college in the distribution of university grants by the Minister for Finance. Uh, McDool and Webb, writing from a Trinity perspective 30 years later, but not minimising McConnell's part in the dispute, offered the pithy verdict, verdict and I should really put this up, that it was, it was an argument before two impotent spectators between a Ballymena Presbyterian and a Derry Catholic. A confrontation that was unlikely to end in detente. Obviously, McGilligan was the Derry Catholic and McConnell was from, was, was, was from Ballymena. Long-term cultural divisions certainly formed the backdrop to the dispute, but it was not simply about religion. Uh, McGilligan's hostility to Trinity College was consistent with his earlier opposition to the foundation of the Dublin Institute for Advanced Studies, de Valera's cherished project in 1940, on the basis that it would drain resources from UCD. His uncompromising support for the NUI, and for particularly UCD, throughout his public career, left no room for compromise. <coughs> The minister's hostility to Trinity, though, was expressed with a vehemence unusual among government ministers, although not backbench TDs, in the post-war era. But at the same time, it would be a mistake to identify McGilligan's stance as an outlier within the political and official elite. McGilligan's contention that Trinity was a privately controlled, largely Protestant enclave within the Irish state was conventional wisdom in the public service until the late 1940s, and it retained considerable currency up to the 1960s, reflecting a deeply held suspicion of Trinity among a section of politicians and the official elite. Paradoxically, then, a government led by Fine Gael, previously the Commonwealth Party, which had defended Trinity's representation in the Dáil during the 1920s and 30s, proved markedly more hostile to Trinity's financial demands than de Valera. Following Fianna Fáil's return to office as a minority administration in 1951, a moment which, according to McDool and Webb, was greeted with sighs of relief in the Provost House and the upper reaches of academia in Trinity College, the college officers resumed negotiations with de Valera and a, and a compromise settlement was reached in February 1952, where the government approved an increase of 40,000 in the annual grant and a more modest grant of 10,000 for the repair of college buildings in 1952-53. 
While the latter estimate did not meet Trinity's request for substantially increased capital funding, and it was officially non-recurrent, it was also renewed annually over a number of years. So it turned out that it offered a value, valuable medium-term resource for the repair of historic buildings, and probably most buildings in Trinity could have been considered in some way historic. De Valera's more generous or pragmatic response to Trinity's lobbying may be attributed to a variety of considerations, some of which had little to do with higher education. I suppose firstly, De Valera, one rationale given, De Valera was friendly with a number of prominent Trinity professors. The previous uh, provost, Thrift, uh, in the uh, late 1930s, and particularly A.J. McConnell. And the value of personal connections can rarely be underestimated in Irish political culture. Donald McCartney, um, argued that at a time when his political opponents retained strong connections with UCD, it was in De Valera's political interest to show the smiling face of Irish nationalism to an institution which found itself in danger of suffering the consequences of its former unionism. Yet while political calculation was certainly present in, in his reversal of McGilligan's decisions, De Valera's record in university education also suggests more complex motivations. Probably more significant was de Valera's concern not to offer any propaganda gifts to the Ulster Unionist administration in Stormont through perceived mean-spirited treatment of Trinity College. And that had also been exemplified by his decision in 1937 in framing the 1937 constitution to guarantee Trinity graduates representation in the Senate. De Valera's decision also was not an isolated incident but it was a notable example of his willingness from time to time to intervene in favor of university, university authorities on particular issues, sometimes going against the grain of dominant political and official attitudes, whether expressed by the Department of Finance or his political opponents. So to finish up then, the decision uh, by the college authorities to seek a state grant in 1947 was significant in terms of Trinity's position because it reflected, it was an early indication of a generational and ideological shift in the balance of power within the college, which came to fruition when McConnell was elected as provost in succession to Alton in 1952. And that transition led in the 1950s to the abandonment of the policy of inconspicuousness, the abandonment of the policy of the low profile by a more outward looking assertive administration which sought to integrate Trinity College more fully within Irish society. The successful negotiations in 1947 between de Valera and the college authorities was a significant landmark in a cautious rapprochement between the authorities of Trinity College and the Irish state, which had started well before uh, 1947 and continued uh, with some interruptions afterwards. It's fair to say that de Valera showed political courage, laced with calculation, in authorising the first Exchequer grant to Trinity College by an Irish government. McGilligan's strikingly divergent position, however, was hardly an outlier, but reflected the conventional hostility towards Trinity College, which persisted in sections of the political and administrative elite, as well as within the upper reaches of the Catholic Church. The inter-party government more generally, I suppose the, the decision also has to be seen in a wider context, the inter-party government more generally struggled to manage increasing demands from a moderately expanding university sector in the early post-war period. The government's approach remained notably, despite the establishment of a cabinet committee, 
And despite some efforts, efforts by some of its members to promote a more coherent approach in terms of a policy framework to higher education, the government's approach remained notably fragmented and dictated more by the influence of individual power breakers, individual, excuse me, dictated more by the influence of individual power brokers than any coherent policy. A notable illustration of the government's inability to develop a coherent position on university financing or policy towards higher education came in the confrontation between McGilligan and the Trinity representatives, which Costello proved un unable to mediate. This political failure by the inter-party government in relation to higher education was far from unique. Successive governments led by de Valera and Costello throughout the 1950s sought to move beyond the austerity of the interwar and wartime period, but proved unable to clarify policy priorities or evolve a longer-term plan for higher education. Thank you very much.